Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 117. We have reached the end of Halloween Times 2014, uh, and there's a lot of stuff to cover at the top of the show, and I think I will start with our sponsor, uh, same as the last couple of episodes. This episode is brought to you by To Be a Man, The Guide to Being a Gentleman. This blog covers a wide range of subjects, from clothes to alcohol to movies to poetry to dating, all the things necessary to be a, to being a classy Christian gentleman. To find out more, just click on the ad at morethanonelesson.com. So thank you very much to, to Be a Man for sponsoring this episode. A uh, couple announcements. There are, there are two new uh, blog entries. One is uh, Jim Rohner's latest entry in his top ten. I believe this is his seventh favorite movie of all time, appropriate for the time of year. John Carpenter's The Thing, which is a really wonderful film. Not for the faint of heart, by the way. It is incredibly gory. Um, but uh, if you are not bothered by that, and in fact, if you find that sort of thing impressive, because it was the 80s, they were all practical effects. If you find that impressive, uh, feel free to watch the film and then read his blog. Also, there is a review of the new Brand, uh, Brad Anderson film, Stonehurst Asylum, written by Reed Lackey, who actually joins me here today. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad right. to be here. A- absolutely. And the reason you are here, instead of Josh, is because... He's a scaredy pants. Well, I don't like saying that because we all have our thing. And if I was hosting a show with somebody who said, hey, we're going to watch a movie about uh, spiders and spider infestation, then I might be out. I don't know. Um, uh, But what I will say is that, uh, you know, as I said, I think last episode or the episode before that, Halloween times is when we uh, take on slightly darker or more macabre material than we usually do. and it's and very it's not always horror films and this year in fact now of course we did talk about Nosferatu which is technically a horror film but i can't think of anybody who would watch the original silent film or even the Werner Herzog remake and be chilled to the bone or anything like that that's a good point um and then Coraline there are things that I, if i were a kid and i were watching Coraline i think i'd find it frightening uh but certainly not only lovers left alive and the guest is of course more of a thriller than a horror film but but we decided to, to end on a bang, or at least a series of uh, disembodied claps, as we talk about James Wan's The Conjuring, a film that, because of the, the nature of its scares, uh, Josh decided to sit this one out. And I had not seen the film. When I did watch it, the next time I talked to Josh, I said, you were totally right to sit this out. If this is the kind of thing that really gets to you, then this would have gotten to you. And Josh, um, I have to apologize for teasing you. You're a braver man than I'll ever be for uh, co-hosting more than one lesson. So, uh, what are you talking so, about? Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd, are you saying this is frightening? Is it intimidating? My stomach was in knots for uh, for for you know trying to come on the show and and sound as eloquent as you and Josh always do every week. Oh, come now. You've got uh, you wrote a you wrote a screenplay. Like you know, you're good with words. That's true. I'm good with words on paper. Uh, verbalizing them sometimes, that, that, that's where the hang-up is. Indeed. Indeed. Fair enough. Um, but we are happy to have you today, and Josh will be back next week. And next week, incidentally, uh, it's going to be very much a, a different format of our usual episode. Uh, 
and uh, this is assuming everything goes according to plan. Uh, next week, the episode will be about Guardians of the Galaxy. It will be recorded live at Biola University. Um, the companion film will be Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. <laughs> Man, that's uh, it's, exciting. It's going to be a shorter episode than usual and even more than that because there there will also be a Q&A session. Um, we, I don't know how that's going to look as far as uh, recording capabilities. Uh, as far as us talking about the film, that'll be fine. The Q&A might be harder to actually record. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm excited. That's very exciting. Um, yeah. I, I will say I am all, I'm a little bummed just because I feel like we could get a full hour and a half episode out of that, I think. Yeah. Uh, so by having to cut that down to 40 minutes oh, with wow. maybe 15 minutes of Q&A, uh, that's not ideal, but that's all right. Um, if for no other reason than because it lets people know, oh, they could do these things in 40 minutes, apparently. What am I doing listening to an extra uh, 50? So Let me revisit that Avengers episode. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> we had a guest for that, though. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, well remembered. Good job. That is our longest. I believe that is our longest episode. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent on that, but, uh, but yeah, so we are talking about the conjuring directed by James Wan written by Chad Hayes and Carrie Hayes starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Lily Taylor, and Ron Livingston. Now, um, I only saw the film a few days ago Mm -hmm. when it came out last year. I got a number of emails from people saying, not only do I need to see this film, but I need to see it for more than one lesson because it's not merely a haunted house film or a, or a demonic possession film, but it also has characters that are, that believe in God, they believe in demons, uh, and they think, and they believe that what they are doing is God's work. And they regularly talk about God's purpose for their lives and all that. So these are, you know, it, that's it's different than The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, in The Exorcist, you have a fan, you have a uh, a main character who doesn't really isn't religious at all, and then you bring in these priests who obviously they believe in God, but there's a crisis of of faith going on with one, right, right. and the other is somewhat unknowable. Um, whereas this, it's all very just human characters, some with a very real faith that is not shaken. Right. Um, and I, I feel like some people would, would have preferred, um, I don't know. Let me, let me throw this out to you just at the top of the show. This is something I was thinking about and it's something that, that bothers me and maybe it shouldn't bother me as much as it does. Um, and I think I talked about this on BP once, but I think I specifically cut it out, uh, oh, wow. because I feel like I did not, uh, talk about it well enough. Hmm. Um, in TV shows and movies and that sort of thing, um, there are good Christian characters. That's that's the way people, often people that are not Christian, that's the way they describe them. Like, oh, he that's that's like a realistic Christian character. That's a character that I can relate to. What that usually means is a Christian who either acts not like a Christian or regularly doubts their faith. Oh yeah. Do you, do you find that to be the case? And if so. Are you bothered by that? Um, well, I am bothered by it. I do find it to be the case most often. Um, a lot of times, the Christian characters that I see portrayed, um, there was, uh, I'm going to tread a little lightly on this, but I remember uh, 
hearing uh, none other than Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. uh, talk about introducing uh, a couple of Christian characters into the show Glee. Yeah, um, which I've I've had a. Um, a, a tumultuous relationship yes, with that show. Yes, you and I have talked off mic about Glee. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I won't go too deeply into that, but I will say that he expressed what seemed to be uh, in an interview that I heard. Uh, it was Actually, I shouldn't say it was an interview. It was it was a component of a, a reality show he was doing as a mm-hmm. side project of Glee. And he expressed in there a desire to really accurately capture a, a Christian character. And, mm-hmm. and he, I think he even might have used something along the lines of want to do right by this grouping of people and 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 seemed very sincere in it but then when i saw in the episodes the outgrowth of that i it was every stereotype that i had ever seen all the all the worst and then some of where the characters landed in a positive angle were things that were so uh how should i put it they were so devoid of any complexity or nuance it was yeah uh, he was simply positioning this character trying to i think sincerely position this character but all that came from it was was yeah. pure stereotype and i do feel that most of the time when christians are portrayed in film or tv it's one of those two extremes they're either utter hypocrites or yeah. they um they have like some severe crisis and don't even really profess strong standing in in where they are one of one thing that i will mention and i know it's funny we're talking about movies but and i've just mentioned two tv shows but i really appreciated the use of faith in the tv show friday night lights Mm, yes because it felt very organic and it was never uh it was never i never felt like that show um tried to avoid it with a couple of exceptions, uh, some some somewhat silly plot lines in season two. Yeah, uh, most that was I'll admit that was uh, very pretentious. But but it also I think it was so obvious a net, obviously a network note. Yeah, that yeah. they clearly drop they couldn't drop it fast enough. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. There was some nice stuff, particularly in the pilot. Where it's just like this is a, a small southern town. Yeah. It's going to be full of people of faith, and the way they expressed it was very believable. Like, and and I do, you know, I don't know if this is specifically where you're headed, but I do feel that The Conjuring does a very good job of portraying. Hey, these are these are people who feel real, yeah, and their faith feels real, yeah. Um, they don't feel like stereotypes at all. They feel like they they belong in a reality, a tangible reality, yeah. And uh, I really appreciated that. It's one of the things that when I do see it in films, you know, like The Apostle or, um, uh, you know, like Friday Night Lights, which I mentioned, when I see it, um, I find it so refreshing because I think it is so rare. And I think that part of that is because a lot of the the major voices in uh, Christian media, Mm -hmm. specifically, a lot of the, the, the more loud voices are extremists yeah. as opposed to um, where I think most of Christianity resides. And that's just in, we, we try to live our life the way that Jesus would want us to live our life. We try yeah. to follow after him, but life's hard. Yeah. <laughs> life's got lots of complicated things and, and there are very real risks and there are very real um, heavy questions. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. It's, it's, and there is an episode to be done at some point. It's one I've been meaning to do, which was how Hollywood and television depict Christians and really going into more detail about mm-hmm. it. And, but, and this 
I think this film will actually factor into that larger conversation because we do have characters that they still have moments of fear. They have moments of, you know, I'm worried about my wife in this situation. Uh, And so, but of course they also believe that there is a God who has power over any demon or demonic thing. Right. And so, and feel like they have a a hand in that. So they never doubt that, but they still have a very real feel fear. And so I feel like, and the fear does not betray their faith, nor does their faith in immediately overcome their fear. Right. And so I feel like that's a, that's, that's the, the tightrope that, that a person walks when depicting somebody of faith. Cause it's often one, because like you said, it's one extreme or another because, as I've said on the show many times, extremes are easy, especially when depicting a group. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, uh, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this as well is because I've, I'm caught up on the walking dead. Are you, uh, I'm two episodes behind. I have seen the premiere of season five. Okay. Have, but okay. So I, you have not yet seen episode two. I okay. have not yet seen it. There is a character who is a pastor or a okay. reverend who shows up and though he is played by an actor I, I like from The Wire and other such things, um, The Walking Dead has never been great in its writing. Yeah. Um, it tends to write the essence of characters instead of characters themselves. And mm-hmm. he is the essence of a reverend, even though I have never in my life – and I've known a lot of pastors and yeah. a lot of Christians. I've never heard anybody talk the way he talks. Oh, but it's, it's clearly the way this character – would talk in a show like that. Oh, and so yeah. it just, it's the kind of thing that just bothers me. It's like, it's not that it's really not that hard to portray us. Yeah. But I guess that's, I think that because I know me and I know you and I know a number of Christians who stick by their convictions, but are also not perfect and recognize that anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, so we got, we just, we jumped very much to the, like, 15 minutes from now. Uh, and so, but I'll, I'll use this to actually uh, sort of get us through the back door into the conjuring because uh, it is based on a true story. We'll get to that in a moment mm-hmm. um, about uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are two demonologists uh, and, they specialized in the supernatural, hauntings, right. exorcism, stuff like that. So they're real, you know, they're real life people. Ed Warren has passed away. Lorraine Warren is still alive, though very, very old. She's um, in The Conjuring. I don't know. If she's in know. The Conjuring. There's oh, okay. one very brief cameo uh, in the middle of the movie. Um, it, the, there's a scene. It's actually the scene where uh, they are showing video. I think they're showing video footage of the Annabelle story oh, okay that um and and it's after that little classroom setting that um carolyn uh perron or perone i can't remember what yeah. it is but uh she comes to approach them about the oh, core okay. story in that classroom setting lorraine warren is sitting on the front row if you watch oh, okay. it again she's on the front row on the left hand side of the screen very briefly but but she's on it for maybe two or three seconds okay that's right. her yeah yeah. So, and and I saw that she was a technical advisor for the film. So, yeah. I mean, they really tried to have this be as close to the. In some cases, obviously, there's going to be some Hollywood uh, showmanship, uh, but trying to capture at least the emotional essence of what what the characters were going through. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so Ed and Lorraine Warren, they've also written a number of books about their experiences. Um, 
I believe, or maybe books have been written about their experiences. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, but the film ends with a quote and I will uh, by Ed Warren that I will, uh, quote here, the devil exists, God exists. And for us as people, our very destiny depends on which we decide to follow. So, and that, so that's, uh, the, the, it's a longer quote, but that is part of the quote at the end of the film. So this is the note, the film ostensibly wants us to think about as we leave right now i would not i would not say this is a christian film i don't know what james wan believes but what i do what i do like is that he he understands i'm telling a story about these people that exist right they they were real people this story this these families were are real people and i'm telling their story i'm telling in a stylistic way i'm still telling a horror story but it's their story. I'm going to take it seriously. Yeah. And so by ending with that quote, uh, I always, I felt like James Wan was saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm just the storyteller, but in the end I need to do justice to these people and their philosophies, whether or not I agree with them. So, uh, that was something that I really respected about the film. Yeah. Um, because I mean, these days, especially you run across a lot of movies that are, you know, quote unquote, based on a true story. And, right. and it's just, you know, they turn it into just stuff flying all over the place, people dying, blood dripping down walls. And, yeah. into, and, and if you look at the the true story, it's, Oh, uh, a door shut by, on its own or something like that. <laughs> um, whereas this, and I don't, I don't know how, maybe you've looked into it. I don't know how much is, a, is, you know, the real thing, uh, sensationalized. Yeah. I'm, um, I have to assume a great deal of it. I believe there was quite a bit, particularly in the, in the final 30 minutes of the film that are, that are yeah. certainly sensationalized. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I, I actually didn't look into it with enough depth, with enough depth to speak definitively as to whether or not, uh, you know, some of the setup things yeah. were accurate, but, one of the things that I found so fascinating about The Conjuring is, and I have to keep reminding myself, that James Wan is responsible for the Saw franchise. Yeah. Which I think, um, while I think the first one was very interesting for a number of reasons, I think that franchise as a whole is very nihilistic and is very um, – it, it displays a lot of uh, just it, – it's almost the very definition uh, that along with Hostel of kind of the gornography or torture porn genre yeah. that you that you could classify – so I found it so interesting that in The Conjuring, he so clearly cares about every single character in this story, yeah. especially the Warrens. But he even cares about the Perron family. Like oh, very he really, much so. Um, there's, there's an almost – even in some of the film's more graphic moments, there's an almost an underlying – I can't believe I'm saying this, but there's almost an underlying tenderness to – how the film treats these characters and you yeah. care about them from the very first moment that you see them. Yeah. We, you know, and it goes, it's so the opposite of, of certain horror expectations. I'd say, especially these days where the higher the body count, the better we want to see, you know, right. Uh, right. a great example is the difference between the new and the old, uh, Dawn of the dead. Okay. Now at this point, the new one is 10 years old, but, um, yeah, but in that, you have four – in the original, you have four main characters in this mall. And, of course, they bring in this biker gang so that people can get eaten by zombies. But, <laughs> um, but you ha- – so – but we're, there's four main characters. You get to the new one and there's like a dozen 
Yeah. Maybe 15. Why? So that we can have more people die. Yeah. That's what – because that's what it's all about. That's what the modern audience wants. Mm-hmm. But – I mean, sorry, that's what Hollywood thinks the modern audience wants. And in some cases, that is what they want. Yeah. But The Conjuring, I looked it up. It was made for $20 million, and it grossed $300 million. Yes. So popular, in fact, that uh, a smaller aspect of the story spawned its own movie this year, Annabelle. Right, right. Which I believe did fairly well. Um, It did. If I had to guess, I, I bet Annabelle is more sensationalized. I don't. I don't think James Wan had much to do with that specific film. I don't think so either. Yeah, maybe in, as a producer or something like that. But, um, but yeah, and nobody spoilers everybody. You know, whatever. Uh, nobody dies in the no. Conjuring. Mm-mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of genuine terror, but no one actually dies. Yeah, and so you know, it's it. It goes against a lot of a lot of uh, our instincts, which is, oh no, we need we need somebody to die so that the stakes are high. Right. Not at all. Not no. at all. Mm-mm. Because, I mean, it's it's crazy to think that um, a ghost clapping, just seeing hands clapping, that's it, can be as terrifying as the texas chainsaw massacre it's so unnerving that scene where where she's playing where carolyn is playing the game with her daughter yeah and then you don't you don't quite know yet but you know that it's not her daughter in the wardrobe but (sighs) oh man that i mean i remember and and that's another thing too that's so brilliant about the film well let me say this first that I think speaking to what you said earlier about the stakes being higher automatically because people die, I definitely agree that that seems to be the sensibility of horror films that are made today. Yeah. But what I don't think people realize, and again, this is just my opinion, but my opinion is that the stakes are highest where you care most about the characters. Absolutely. So it doesn't matter that you know 45 people could get plowed down by a Jason or a Freddy or something like that. That that doesn't make me care. Yeah. But these, this family in this house, I, I mean, I don't want anything to happen to any of them. Every single time one of them gets hurt. And even though there's no death, there are some injuries. Yeah. And every single time somebody gets hurt, I'm just, I'm so tense and yeah. I'm completely invested in their well being. And I think that's something that's missing from, and I think part of why the conjuring did so well is something that has been missing for a long time from from horror films is that sense of genuine concern about yeah. the protagonists and uh I, I that's why i think this film succeeded as well as it did and why yeah. its fear is genuinely palpable is that it it really does your stakes are high because you care what happens to these people and i think james wan is a mature enough filmmaker to understand and and I think probably credit is due to the the writers as well that they understand because a thing they could have done is incorporated side characters and there are side characters involved. Yeah, they're not the Warrens, they're not the Perones, they are associates of the Warrens. Right, and it's like if I've ever seen if if ever there was a, an opportunity for an expendable character, certainly there you go. Yeah, but that they don't do that. Um, instead the writers and James Wan, they understand there is so much vulnerability in this story that you don't, that the stakes are there instinctively. 
One is, and I apologize if this sounds a little bit sexist, um, the Perones are one man, his wife, and five daughters. Yeah. Okay? And he is a trucker. He's gone a lot. Now, obviously, women can take care of themselves, as we've mm-hmm. seen from any number of other horror films. Yeah. Um, but there's something about five young girls, not even young, not even young boys. That can be scary, too. Sure. But five young girls, like, we we instinctively want to protect them. Right. Um, so, young girls, and there's the fact that it's in the house with them. Mm-hmm. And little things like, uh, you know, there's there's two girls that they share a room. And you want to feel like if you're in some, if you're with another person. You know, if I was in, if I was in sitting in this room alone and if I was in this house alone, but certainly in this room alone and I started to, and I felt like something's not right, I would feel particularly vulnerable. Certainly. But just the fact of you being here now, there's two, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll quote Batman. Now we're two. (laughs) Um, And you feel safer just with another person there. So the fact that like this that these ghosts or demons or whatever you want to call them, that they are messing with, they're messing with these people, even in the presence of other people. And you're still not safe. I think he just understands that there's a home invasion quality to this. There's a, an inherent vulnerability because it's not merely children, but also girls. Um, again, I apologize if that sounds sexist. It could be, it could be all, it could be five young boys. Uh, but I do feel like the, the, the attitudes would be different in the characters, Mm. but, um, but yeah, I think he understands that there's so much about this story that is already frightening that he doesn't need to ratchet up things. Undoubtedly, there are things that are ratcheted up as far as the, the terror. Right. But as far as the circumstances, it doesn't need to be ratcheted up. They've got it. It's yeah. all, all the elements are already there. So yeah, I, I, I respect a lot of the film's restraint. And I'm sure that there are there are things in which the film is not restrained at all, in which they, they like I said, ratchet up certain scenes and, and certain right, aspects right. of the terror. But, um, but yeah, there's no, even there's even, uh, gory scenes in the companion film, poltergeist, a oh. PG related, uh, rated film. Yeah. Um, and of course that's not, you know, based on a true story. So they didn't feel any responsibility to, to anybody, but, uh, but you know, there's a, a, a fantasy sequence where a character peels off his own face. Oh, certainly. And Which it's like, and there's unnerving. none of that in here. No, you know, mm. so, yeah, uh, and we haven't even gotten into the story, but it's ba- it's basically a haunted house movie where this family uh, moves in to this country house, and immediately uh, they they discover a, a basement, and there's a boarded up uh, the the door to the basement has been boarded up, but they they open that up, and you're not totally sure if maybe that releases some ghosts, or maybe they're already there. The door yeah. the dog doesn't want to come in, no, even uh-uh. before the basement has been revealed. So. Oh, that's um, interesting. I just realized that's funny. We said there's no, you know, nobody dies in The Conjuring. Oh, that's but, true. But the dog dies. Yeah. And, and a number of birds die, I guess. Yes. And, and, uh, oh, well, that's true. Yes. A lot of, a lot of pigeons and a couple of ravens. But, uh, but I think too, if you're going for that, uh, 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 the companion film follows the same pattern. There's only one, only one actual body count and it's, uh, the pet bird. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yes. <laughs> that's the only, that's yeah. the only one that dies in that. So they're, they're, they're similar in that aspect. But even, even in that regard, like both films have such, such care for 
for the families in general. And, yeah. and something that you mentioned before we started recording is that the experiences seem to, in a bizarre way, bond the family. Oh, yeah. And seems to bring them together. It, it, it's explicit in The Conjuring that, mm-hmm. that that motif of the family at the beach ultimately becomes a real tide turner in the, the conflict that they're in because yeah. they – it's it's that reflection the the family unit and and how much love they have for one another that ultimately liberates them yeah in both in both films yeah absolutely yeah. and so um and and we'll get to to poltergeist in a moment but uh, but yeah and we, so we've already talked a lot about what we enjoyed about the conjuring um i think it's such a wonderful one of the things that i really like about horror films and and i know you do as well and something that I feel like, I mean, I mean, you in your own life, you've experienced Christians who are so wary of horror, and I understand why. Certainly, um, that they just think I'm not, I'm not watching any of it now. And it goes beyond mere caution about the things that that get to them. That right. that's understandable. Certainly, but it just goes to this idea of like I don't want to, I don't want to deal with any of that. And I think it's. And I think it's wrong mm-hmm. to to engage in these types of movies. You know, I mean, you've experienced that with stuff you've written. Uh, last year, uh, when Bill Ober- when Bill Oberst Jr. was on the show, he said he's experienced that. Doug Jones, Certainly. as an actor, he experienced that. Um, and then, of course, as as movie watchers, we experienced that. And so, while I do understand, I would say that maybe a cavalier attitude and just I'm going to watch whatever. Maybe that's not the best attitude to have. Certainly. But but I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't necessarily, I'd still give that, give that person the benefit of the doubt. But what I will say is in some cases you're missing out on some pretty tremendous filmmaking um, from a style standpoint, from just understanding. Cause like, you know, people will watch a movie that makes them happy, that inspires them. They'll watch a movie that makes them cry, a movie that just touches them emotionally. Mm-hmm. Now, fear is it's an emotion, but it's also an instinct. But right. a film that can make you genuinely frightened and put you in the same emotional state as these characters, it's achieving just as much as a film that can make you cry along with characters. Certainly. And so James Wan, I think, is is a really – and I didn't see – what did he do? Did he do Sinister or Insidious as well? He did Insidious. Insidious, yeah. which I heard was also very good. Insidious is very that. good, yeah. Um, and I didn't I didn't see any of the Saw movies. Um, but I heard the first one was actually quite good. The and first so, one was pretty good, yeah. So, it, you know, it is interesting. I, I'd be interested to see what he could do with the, uh, an intense drama, you know, because yeah. I bet he could do it. I think it'd be very interesting to to see that because I think part of me feels like if you can sell fear to people, yeah. Because I think especially these days when we're very we walk into a movie very cynical, yeah. And especially if a film says I can manipulate you into being scared, you you're sitting in a you're sitting very safely in a movie theater with a with a bunch of other people. I'm right. going to make you forget that and be genuinely frightened. Mm-hmm. And we walk in and think. Yeah, all right, fine, scare me. Sure. And he can do it. If he can do that, I think he can probably do other things as well. I agree. And so, um, so yeah, from a directorial standpoint, from an art direction standpoint, editing, uh, I do think the music may, is maybe a bit bombastic uh, at times. Oh, yeah, but it's I understand. Fine. It's yeah. fine. Um, 
I guess what I mean is that like the orchestration is is often very big, and in a film like that, I I feel like I tend to like stuff that's a little eerie and just mm-hmm. and small, right? Um, but I guess you know in the moments where you know things scary things happen, it's not like the music comes in and just telegraphs it. So I guess where there isn't score or where the score is small, I guess that's where it needs to be. So, so yeah, even then that's, that's a, that's a small complaint. Um, so yeah. And, uh, we'll talk about the, the performances in a moment, but am I, is there anything else about the film that you can think of from a stylistic, from a technical standpoint that really, uh, stuck out to you? Well, it felt, what's great is that it, it felt, and this, this is in my, when I say it, it's absolutely a compliment. It felt old to me and it, oh, yeah. like it felt it felt classic if it the, everything the length of the shots are longer mm-hmm. um it doesn't rely a great deal on frenetic filmmaking and and scene yeah. depictions that that one of those climactic scenes in the uh there's several scenes towards the end when they're performing the final sort of exorcism yeah um where the shots are way longer than I anticipated them being. Yeah. You know, uh, a lesser filmmaker might have tried to ratchet up the tension simply by, you know, creating these quick three-second edits. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there are some of those. It's not as if everything is, is one long continuous take. But yeah. um, but there's just a great trust in uh, moving with the camera, moving with the point of view, and yeah. just seeing, you know, you stage your scene in such a way that you don't have to depend upon yeah. frantic editing. And there's something definitely to be said about the benefits of of uh, sharp editing and quick cuts, but I just really appreciated how this film felt so um, it, it felt like one of those movies from the from the 70s or the early 80s where everything was just really not the necessarily the slasher films, but where everything was far more atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not talking in depth about this, but there's a, a film from 1980 called The Changeling that oh, yeah. I, that I love, starring George C. Scott, and it, it 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 reminded me a lot of that, just in the way it it takes its time and it's brave enough to just let all of the scenery breathe and um and so i i just really appreciated that i appreciated very much the way james wan approached this film and one thing that i will say this perhaps might be a bit more thematic but we talked about how he cares about the characters there's an argument to be made perhaps uh perhaps wouldn't take much convincing that the conjuring is as much if not more the the warren's story than it is the the Perones. Oh, absolutely. Even though the Perones probably have more more screen time in terms yeah. of just you spend a lot of time at the house. Yeah, and they have uh, you know a little bit more skin in the game. Right. Um. You know they stand to lose the most. Certainly. Um. But yeah, it's and there were times when I was actually worried that the that the 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 shifting of perspective to the Warrens mm-hmm. would actually start to eclipse the Perones, and and thankfully it didn't. Um, we still got a a strong sense of who they were, what they wanted. And, and it just became a thing that like, now it's the four as speaking in terms of the adults. Now it's the four of them together. Now they are working together towards this goal instead of, okay, now it's the Warren's story. Yeah. You know, so, which, and, and they are strong characters and because they inherently know what's going on more, I think we, tend to relate to them yeah um 
more directly or maybe we want to relate to them more but yeah it's uh the fact that it it man it, it balances both of them i i think is uh an achievement i i certainly agree I certainly agree and there's also the the fact that you know you, you mentioned the quote at the end from from ed warren um, and it's about you know deciding who you're going to follow. There's a couple of things, particularly with the side characters, and I, I apologize that I've forgotten their names, but the the character of the the two sort of assistants. Yeah. Uh, one of them is you know a complete believer in the yeah. supernatural and what the Warrens do on a regular basis. The other one is a a, a complete skeptic. Yeah, because um, he's new to this. Yeah. And, and he's, he's a cop, and a cop needs to be skeptical of things. And, right. And so he's bantering with him at one point, and I, I thought that moments like when the two of them are bantering about whether or not this is real or a hoax said a lot about what the film was trying to say. Yeah. Because they both witnessed the same thing. Yeah. They both experienced it, but they have two different competing perspectives on it. Um, the film sort of tips its hand one way when eventually the skeptic starts experiencing yeah. specific paranormal activity. Um, not the movie. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there does come a moment when they pop the film uh, Paranormal Activity and watch that for about 45 minutes. <laughs> it's a very strange story beat. I was like, okay, I'm not sure if I can. I, I'll go get I'll go get some popcorn at this point. Um, but no, like the exchanges that the two of them had, I appreciated as well, because I think that one thing about the Warrens as real people, when I did look up a little bit about them and some people consider them complete scam artists yeah. that they were utter frauds in everything that they did. There's, there's quite a few people who believe them to be authentic and that what yeah. they do is authentic. But what's interesting about the way the film treats them, the film believes in them. Yeah. Juan believes in them as a filmmaker and the story believes in them, but it laces enough things in there to show like, Hey, what, you're, you're seeing this thing. Obviously you're seeing a fictional right. representation of this thing, but, um, what you take away from it may largely be up to you, how you yeah. feel about it and what you what you decide. And so I do think ending with a quote like that is is <coughs> vital to understanding what the film's trying to do on a thematic standpoint, besides just scaring yeah, the pants off of it. It's pretty bold um, to, to make that choice because it definitely it decides Hey, if you want if you want to look into the real life accounts and come to your own conclusion, that's fine. But in this movie the, maybe not even the director, maybe not even the writers. The movie is there, right there with the Warrens. Certainly. Um, and uh, what was it? Um, a thing that I always found fascinating was uh, in uh, The Omen, which is a film I don't love. But mm. um, I watched uh, uh, the commentary with director Richard Donner, and it's a really good commentary. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I've said this at this point, anything I say, I've probably said on one of my podcasts. Um, and Richard Donner talks about how, for those that don't know, the, the omen is about uh, the ostensible birth of the Antichrist. Yeah. And so, um, and Gregory Peck plays the father of the Antichrist, or rather the adopted father, but he doesn't know that. Um, and so he's trying to figure and it quickly comes into view that uh, it comes into focus that, Oh, okay, this is the situation. And he decides, Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to kill this kid. You yeah. know, and it's a horrible thing. And so, um, and I, I think the film doesn't totally deal with the emotional ramifications of what that would mean. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, and so in watching the film, I always thought that, oh, this is a film that says, yes, this kid, Damien, is going to be the Antichrist, and uh, mm-hmm. he should die at the end. Um, you watch the commentary, and not only does Richard Donner not believe that, but he's actually kind of – he mocks – Mm-hmm. the Gregory Peck character for believing that. Yeah. And it always struck me as a little frustrating because it's just like, okay, well, first off, in a, I guess hats off to you for making a film that takes the character seriously. But at the same time, he seemed to think he was setting up a film that is kind of neutral and you could come down one way or the other. And I thought, Oh, well, you did not create that film no, at all. Not at all. You've done a very good job of making a see only from his perspective, and there's no other conclusion you could come to. Oh, And yeah. so it always struck me as a little strange, like, huh, this this would – and maybe that's one of the reasons the film doesn't totally work for me. Some people love it. Some people, some people think it's really complex and really scary. Hmm. I never thought it was any of that. And maybe it's because even as he was making a film – that believed its main character, he not only did he not as a director, but he thought he was trying to make a film that was more neutral. And maybe that meant he was holding back a little bit, even though it's still effective for, for some audience members. And whereas I think James Wan, I don't know if he agrees, if he believes the Warrens or not, but he, he committed completely to the material and said, this is what we're going to do. Totally. I'm not going to hold back. Because they don't hold back, so here we go, and uh, and I like that boldness, you know, completely. Which agree. brings me into a, the, a larger conversation to have, and we had it a little bit last year when we talked about The Exorcist. So we're talking about demonic possession. We're talking about spiritual warfare, which is a thing I don't like talking about in a public setting. I'm sure you don't either. Yeah. I'm sure most Christians don't. Some are very casual about it, and good for them. Um, and I say that sincerely. It's a thing the Bible speaks about. Um, yeah. But in 2014, you don't want to be a. Frankly, you like it's. You don't want to talk about hell. You don't want to po- talk about the devil. Right. You certainly don't want right. to talk about the idea of demonic possession or oppression or any of those other things. Um, and so we just don't. We don't talk about it, even if we believe it. We don't talk about it because we know how it will come across. Yeah. So, you know, you and I are talking about this, about the film believing in these characters. The question that we could, that we could talk about is, do we agree with these characters? Mm. Do, do we believe them as Christians? You know? Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, I don't, frankly, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I actually approach, I don't know, I, I actually approach this material with a certain degree of skepticism, perhaps more than I should. I don't know. Um, I think it's probably good for any time you're dealing with something like this, as the characters themselves do. They approach it with skepticism, and they say Certainly. most of these, it turns out to be a, a rusty pipe or something like that. Right, right. And as opposed to... As opposed to them saying like, oh, yeah, you you definitely have a thing here, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is incidentally what a scam artist would say. Yeah. Um, and so... I don't necessarily want to just come out and ask you, like, do you believe the Warrens or do you believe this story is true or anything like that? Rather, I would say, what do you think about the concept of spiritual warfare? Um, well, I, I, I feel this way in most subjects that involve my faith. Actually, I, I mean, I'm hesitant to put a huge blanket over it, but I feel this way about most subjects in life that my foundational belief in God and 
subsequently my more specific belief in in Jesus Christ has always been very um, it's made a lot of things possible for me. I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of people in faith um, they treat faith as if it's restrictive. They yeah. treat faith as if it is. Um, well, now we can't believe that. We can't believe in this. Can't right. believe in ghosts. Can't believe in aliens. Can't believe in all of these other sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and so there's this sort of gridlock territorialism of, well, no, if it, if it's not a subject specifically alluded to or addressed by the Bible, then then it is of no value or relevance to right. our life. Um, while I am not in the camp of, oh yeah, something happened at Roswell and you know these right. are all ghosts. I'm certainly not in that camp, but how, how I usually respond to that subject is I'm, I'm a believer in possibilities yeah. because I understand that I have a scope of very limited experience. I have, uh, again, a foundational belief in a very real God, and I have a subsequent more specific belief in Jesus Christ. Those things have made almost everything possible. Yeah. So when people speak of a subject like supernatural things, um, I approach it with a sort of uh, inquisitive mind, not so much a skeptical one, but just a you know let me let me see. I, I think yeah. this. I think there could be some validity to this. I also believe that there could be scam artists. Yeah. And I think that when someone. When anyone, and this is, again, I'll, I'll be as sensitive as I can with blanket statements like this, but I think that anyone who would who would rule out everything in either camp uh, puts themselves in kind of a, a restricted position. They've they've placed yeah. themselves in a very sort of you're you're in the in the, the box, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I feel this way about people. Not necessarily of an agnostic mindset, but people you know who are completely atheists and they're completely sure that yeah. there is no God. Um, and people who, uh, on the other side of things, are you know utterly convinced of all of these you know sort of systematic ideas about faith. Yeah, I'm all I, I'm. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say, like I approach both with a great deal of skepticism. Mm-hmm. Like you know, automatically the fact that you're so completely confident about yeah. everything from your scope of experience now i'm a bit a, a bit leery of anything that you would that you would say um <laughs> which is ironic uh, and perhaps a bit disingenuous on my part because i would completely affirm you know god jesus so many other things with just as much confidence as either of them would um and it's odd actually i i'm not sure if i would um, uh, in the sense yeah. that, like if somebody said, do you think you could be wrong? Mm. My answer would be, well, sure. Yeah, of course I could be wrong. I don't think I am. Right. I, I certainly don't think I am. About, and, but people could say, do you think you're wrong about literally anything? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, someone could say, I could say, you know what movie's amazing? Citizen Kane. And someone says, do you think you could be wrong? Now, I would say, yeah, I could be wrong. But I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's just like, yeah, I guess I could be wrong. Citizen Kane might not be this amazing film. <laughs> now, I'm only saying I could be wrong because I could be. Right, right. Who, who knows? Yeah. You know, but at the same time, and I know some people, some, some Christians say like, well, as a Christian, you should not entertain the notion that you're wrong. It's like, but I don't think I'm wrong. I'm not acting as if I'm wrong. I'm not conceding anything. Right. I'm right. merely saying I could be sure. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I no, don't know. It's, no. uh, it's, it's a weird thing. But. I, don't think, I don't think there's anything at all. In fact, when, when I hear you say, and I, I completely agree with you, that some Christians don't even allow the notion of, I'm, I might be mistaken. I might be yeah. wrong. Some people are not even brave enough to, to allow that question into their thinking. And I feel like when they do that, uh, I, this is just the response that I have to a question like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I hear that, I begin to think that they're that they're doing in some capacity what the scripture advises us not to do about thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. Yeah, um, I do think that there can be a certain degree of arrogance that can uh, come with the fact of like, oh no, there's I will not entertain the notion that I am wrong. Obviously, as you as you alluded to earlier, and even outright said, nobody holds a belief that they know is wrong. Nobody, yeah. you know, nobody holds even an opinion that they think is wrong. I don't, I don't walk around going, no, the sky's green. Like, like, yeah. no, the sky, the sky's just green. And everybody, it's all a big, it's all a big fraudulent conspiracy. Yeah. Everybody who has an opinion about something, particularly a passionate opinion. And if that com- opinion stems into the place of conviction where they right. live their life by it, naturally you're going to think that it's true. Sure. And naturally you're going to think that it's right. Um, that's not that's neither arrogant nor closed minded. It's arrogance or closed minded, <coughs> in my opinion, to completely reject the notion that you are fallible as right. a, as a person or as a thinker. Um, certainly, you're fallible, <coughs> and uh, and I think it's I think I have found it healthy in my life to um, to approach really everything. With a certain degree of, I'm a man. I'm 34 years old with a very specific, limited range of experience. I consider myself relatively a deep thinker. But if I were to encounter something like the like the Perones or the Warrens do, my response would probably be like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if I believe it. But I know that I, I, it could be. <laughs> like, yeah. It could be. I heard Stephen King say one time because they asked him. They've asked him a variety of fear-related subjects in his own life and and i remember he responded to an interview at one point where they said have you ever messed with like a ouija board or anything and he said no i have never messed with anything like that because i think there could be some validity to it so i don't invite that (laughs) into my life (coughs) and i always thought that answer was very interesting because um and 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 i would probably you know say something very similar if i were approached with something like the warrens like hey you want to go you want to go spend the night in this in this house that everybody says is haunted and is built over a burial ground i would rather not yeah. <laughs> like, not because i'm a coward but because i i i i know better than to mess with fire or poke a snake or or any number yeah. of other things um so i i think i went off on a couple of tangents in answering your question but. no i and you know that idea of everything being possible um is one that I find very interesting because if you are somebody who this came about because um, there's a comedian that I uh, am aware of who regularly likes to put things in the simplest terms and either he acts as though he doesn't understand or he actively does not understand Mm. Um, in which he says like he says to Christians so you're telling me you believe in the talking snake in reference to you know the story of Adam and Eve and all that now the question he's asking is he's framing it in a way it's like that's ridiculous snakes don't talk Mm -hmm. now the way to answer that is well I do believe that there is a God yeah and 
I also believe that there is a devil. I believe that there is a spiritual realm that does interact with the physical realm Mm -hmm. and is not limited by the physical. Now, knowing that, knowing that I believe that, do I believe that the spiritual, that let's say, let's say the devil, that the devil can either manipulate a dumb animal like a snake or at least give the impression that a snake is talking when in fact it is him. Yes, I do. Hmm. Because it's just like the, to oversimplify a thing, um, yeah. which I think is is always Christians can do it too. Oh, certainly. You know, as, and the idea is like, like you said, do you believe in ghosts? Well, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Okay, well, let me phrase it this way: Do you believe in demons? Yes. Okay, then maybe let's let's say that the demon is doing the thing that someone is saying a ghost is doing. Right. Maybe right. let's look at it like that. And so, yeah, it's uh, you know, anytime you deal with the idea of spiritual warfare and and all that, it brings out so much in people. Yeah. And and me and me as well. You know, I mean, even the stuff that we've been saying for the last ten minutes or so, I just feel like I I, I tense up Start when I cringe. think of who yeah. might be listening. Certainly, you know, it could Certainly. be because we have you know we have atheist listeners to this show Certainly. who might email in and just say this is dumb, this is backwards, talking about demons, you know. And when if someone were to ask me like to what extent do demons interact with the physical world, I have no idea. Right, um, right. And I'm not going to claim to know. Like in the, I certainly know that in the Bible it talks about possession. It talks about any number of things. Right. Um, I certainly believe that there's uh, the idea of like I, I'm I'm a big fan of the screw tape letters. Oh, and the certainly. idea of yeah. the idea of like whispering bad ideas into your mind or just encouraging bad instincts and that and all mm-hmm. that. That is a thing I believe. Um, I do not think that robs you of free will. No, um, no. But anyway, that's that's a conversation for another time. So that is the thing that I wanted to talk about in regards to this. Um, sure. Because I do. I know that I know there are plenty of uh, there are Christians who say who have taken the distaste of talking about this and have actually turned it into something very different. And they actually don't they don't, like don't believe in hell. Or right, they don't believe right. in the devil. And it's just like, okay, well. And it's like, okay, then that means there's a lot, a whole lot mm-hmm. of symbolism in the Bible. Now, there is a lot of symbolism in the Bible. But there Certainly. are some things that are like, this is, you now believe that a good, a huge percentage of the Bible is purely symbolic. Yeah. When there's, right. when it's even in passages where it's giving no indication of that. Yeah. So... You know, I would say that like, you know, and and maybe you're a Christian listening to this and it's not a thing you think about. And frankly, it's not a thing I think about. Sure. And, fr- sure. and I think I should think about it more, honestly. Hmm. Um, not because I'm looking for something to blame, but because we're told to think about this. We're told to uh, to be aware of, of more than just ourselves. And for example, if you are in the midst of... Um, if you're, you know, I've, I've been a part of like some Bible studies and I've led uh, a couple and I've just seen where like, man, things are just going bad. Like they're yeah. just for whatever reason. And I remember somebody and I just think like, man, we're just in a bad season. People are arguing like there's been gossip stuff going on. Like it's, it's bad. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other leaders says, you know, it might be a spiritual thing. Like it could actually be the, this idea of, 
good things could come from this Bible study and good things have. So why not cause some discord? And I was like, yeah. no, I, I, I don't even think of that. Right. I only mm-hmm. ever even, I only ever think in terms of human frailty, which is not a bad thing to consider because right. it's still a function of free will. But yeah, there's, because, and, and once you start thinking, and I'll actually quote a, a passage from the Bible, but like once you start, once you realize, oh, there's this other aspect, then it, it at the very least it means, oh, well, all I can do in this instance is pray. All I can yeah. do is go to God for it. And, um, and that's never a bad instinct. Certainly. So anyway, uh, we've definitely gone on a tangent, <laughs> um, but it's one that, that should be had. I, I'm, I have no doubt that this is why people said we should talk about the conjuring. Um, yeah. So uh, I will briefly talk about uh, some of the performances. Obviously, Vera Farmiga's Lorraine uh, Warren, um, there's a lot going on with that character Mm -hmm. um, because along with being, you know, like a demonologist and stuff, she is uh, not psychic, clairvoyant, I believe is how they describe her. I think think you're right. Okay. Uh, Now – and then, of course, that brings up other issues for Christians. <laughs> like, do I believe in clairvoyance? Uh, I, I, I don't think I do. I'm not sure. But then if you think in terms of like, yes, but maybe there are some Christians that are more attuned. You know, if you think in terms of like spiritual gifts, maybe there are some that are more attuned to spiritual so, warfare. Again, the it, it comes down for me to, to possibilities. Yeah. You know, it's like I think, um, I think that largely uh, two things I'll say, hopefully not derailing us the uh, the first thing that i think is is that like if if somebody does have particular gifts i think that um it, it all depends on how they again to go back to the to the ed warren quote like it all depends on how they're going to use them mm-hmm. whether those gifts be something as i i think that there are musicians and artists out there whose talent i would almost describe as magical like the yeah. things that they're capable of doing i'm like man i don't i don't even know how yeah. that is in human ability to do and yet it is and it's not a huge leap for me individually to think that there could be things that are a bit out of the scope of artistic normality um in the realm of something like clairvoyance or or uh you know some some form of like maybe psychic phenomena or anything that might be possible. Yeah. Do I think that it is, you know, uh, personally, do I think it's positive or healthy for that to be taken to its extreme? I don't. Yeah. Um, but I rarely think that anything in the extremes is, is necessarily healthy. I think right. that much of life and good health depends upon a balance to what you, to what you have and how you use it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I definitely uh, am open to the idea that, you know, somebody who was a complete Christian believer could have some clairvoyant gift of some kind. I mean, there's yeah. people in the Bible who are able to interpret dreams and there are people in the Bible who are able to, to have prophetic visions yeah. and we don't in reading the scriptures and in talking about that as, as Christians, we don't balk at their inability to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, you know, we think in terms we we so readily say, "Oh, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever." But right. when we but then we look at stuff in the Bible and we see right. somebody doing something, and we think, "Well, surely if that were to happen now, we <laughs> would never. I'd never believe it." Yeah. Um. I know. I myself. I myself have. have 
thought that and said that. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, why am I saying that? I don't, I don't think I totally know. Um, but yeah, uh, so the, yeah, the character of, of Lorraine Warren and just the fact that she's more attuned to this and thus more susceptible to the negative effects of it makes her an interesting character. But I also thought Edward, Ed Warren, I thought that because he doesn't have the clairvoyance, I thought he was going to be shortchanged as a character. Mm. Um, but he's really not no. because he's, you know, in, in many ways he seems like kind of the, a level headed guy, which makes it seem like he's not like he wouldn't be into this kind of thing. Right. 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 Uh, but he's like looking out for his wife. He's trying to do things right. Um, and also I think some of that is Patrick Wilson, who is re- who, despite having leading man looks really excels as, at playing flawed characters. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and so, and, I think I think he was a good good choice for this car, this part. Uh, I remember last year a lot of people said, you know, who should be nominated for supporting actress, but never will be, is Lily Taylor yeah. as Carolyn. Yeah. Now, in watching the movie, I thought, yeah, she's really good. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, comes the uh, possession, oh. um, and you just think it's so weird because the thing is, you're, you're so it, not unlike The Exorcist. You're so wrapped up in the film mm-hmm. that you're thinking it. So when you, when a character is, you know, possessed by a demon or a ghost or whatever you want to call it, um, you're wrapped up and you just, and you just see that other thing. Yeah. No, that's a performance. That's, that's an actress yeah. giving two distinct performances and the re- and the entire reason that you're buying that this is another entity is because the actress is doing a good job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, yeah, I guess that is pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And so and I've 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 thought Lily Taylor was a very good uh actress who doesn't get enough credit for like twenty years. Yeah. I mean she's she was, spectacular. Like she was really. in um Robert Altman shortcuts. And I remember thinking she was great in that. What was it? Uh, I think she was in, I shot Andy Warhol. She was good in that. Um, and I, and I know I've seen her in, in other things where she's just a very reliable character actress. And, mm-hmm. um, and I like that in, in the eyes of a lot of viewers, they saw the conjuring and thought, man, she's, who is this? Oh, yeah. She's great. She's it's, it's odd that you can be bouncing around Hollywood for 20 years getting significant parts certainly and people still don't know who you are but it's very it's very possible yeah um and then ron livingston also did a great job as roger and he has a a tough part as well because being away from his home for a long time uh it's easy for him to seem distant and because he never seems to be in any real danger right it's always his wife or his girls never him and so in a way it's almost like he he desperately like this is it's still affecting him mm-hmm. but almost uh he's he's once removed from the danger right and so uh it's hard to i don't know it's and and it, it, the same thing happens in poltergeist with the the dad and right, the husband right. part somehow they just seem to be outside of this but of course it still affects them and they still want good things to happen certainly um which leads to this other thing and there's a really notable scene that i liked where um ron livingston is on the phone he's he's going to be getting a job 
Yeah. And you just hear him. He's, you don't hear the other side of the conversation, but you hear him say like, man, that's, that's half my rate. Right. But he still takes the job because mm-hmm. he needs to, they need like, and it just little scenes like that. And you just feel like the the concept of, of impotence, not literal, not physical impotence, but the right, idea of like right. wanting so bad to take care of your family mm-hmm. in this case, financially, but then also the way that manifests itself itself spiritually. Yeah. Wanting to take care of them, wanting to protect them, but you just can't. Yeah. And it's the same with, it's the same with poltergeist, you know, certainly he, the character means well, he'll do everything he can, but in the end it has to, it's, it's the mother. Yeah. And, you know, you're a husband and father. Certainly. I'm a husband, and at some point I assume I will be a father. And we want to feel like we can take care of our families. Certainly. And just this idea of not being able to do that, even though you want to, and you're willing to do anything you can, but you just can't. And that, that level of helplessness is so, I mean, I felt we're talking about both Craig T. Nelson's performance in poltergeist and ron livingston's performance in the conjuring they both do such a good job with the pathos of that Mm -hmm. because that degree of helplessness is something that i think you would have to be you you know you may not have to be a husband or father but you would have to be responsible for the lives of others yeah to understand that degree of of helplessness when you are unable to to just make it go away yeah. when you don't have a statement that you can say that will, that will make everybody feel better when you can't, you know, click on a light and suddenly it's not scary anymore. Yeah. You know, that, that degree of just, just fragility when you're, when you're sitting there and I like, I loved the moment in the conjuring where he's almost about to get into a fight with Ed Warren because he thinks that what Warren is doing is, is killing his wife yeah. as opposed to actually help. And I love that, that it's actually Lorraine who steps in. It's a, it's, it's a, I wouldn't call it a throwaway line, but it's a very, you know, it's not an emphasized line yeah. um, where she just comes in and she says, you know, you be aware we are now fighting for her soul, yeah. you know? So she, she kind of makes him aware of the stakes of what's happening. But I loved what Livingston did so much with that scene. You could see it every time the camera moves to his face. You could see the anguish he's going through, seeing his wife go through this, which seeing any human being go yeah. through what she goes through in those moments, I I mean, it's staggering to begin with. Yeah. Then you add on the fact, this is the woman that I love, the mother of my children. Yeah. And it, it's... Yeah, all of the performances in both films really across the board are outstanding. Yeah. I didn't find a weak link, in my opinion, in, in any of them. And there's one moment uh, – I'll use this to get us into Poltergeist, even though it's a weird it's a weird entry point. <laughs> there's – the mo- – I've seen Poltergeist probably four times, maybe five. Um, and the first time I saw it – and this I, – I took note of this because it seemed like such an interesting beat to play uh, – and one that I think rang true to me, which is you have Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams as the parents of this family, and their little girl has been taken into this the spiritual realm, and the uh, the psychic and the ghost chasers and all that like they're all in there try- and they're all working together, and then in the midst of the climax, you know, the mother has to sort of coax the girl mm-hmm. out. Uh, of this realm, but then the the psychic says to the father, 
uh, basically says to says to both parents, which of you is she more afraid of or more intimidated by? Mm, yeah. And they and the mom says, well, it's it's you. It has to be you. And he yeah. immediately is like, well, eh. yeah. And he and he's saying like. He's like, that's unfair to put, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a domestic, it's, it's a, a kind of amusing in the moment that they would go into that, but it's also, it seems so real. It's like how it being faced with the fact of, yeah, I am probably more and in, more intimidating to my daughter because he's the dad. He's probably the one that right. is more responsible for punishment in this case. More stern but just, with her. Yeah. But just feeling like, Hey, in this moment, like I want to sacrifice myself for my daughter just as much as you. Yeah. I still love her, but now I'm some kind of bad guy. Yeah. And the fa- and even having, and it's like, and now I have to play this part mm-hmm. of the bad guy so that my daughter can be saved. Right now, all I want to do is tell her I love her more than anything else in the world. Right. But right. you will not, like, I want to protect and you are actually keeping me from that that's that the moment in the conjuring reminded me of that now he doesn't have to be actively aggressive right but but he has to sit back and watch uh someone he loves be hurt in some way he has to be completely counter he has to act completely counterintuitive yeah because he has to remain passive for it to be successful yeah um yeah i i love uh i i love that both films and i've seen other other films treat these characters this way but the the invested uh victim who's not the target of the attack yeah who's you know just in the room or who's standing by it sometimes it's a father sometimes it's a, a another family member yeah uh, but i always i always like paying attention to those characters and seeing a what the actors do with them but also how the films treat them yeah do the do the films care like what they're experiencing and what they're going through and i feel like both of these films do an exceptional job with those moments. And that's where the ensemble aspect comes in because you need actors that have a certain dynamic with one another. And you also have to have a a dynamic, uh, be established as Mm -hmm. more people enter in that aren't just the family. And that brings us very firmly into poltergeist where of course you have the family and they're great, but then you also have the ghost chasers, uh, you know, one of them played by Oscar winner, Beatrice Strait. Yeah. Um, who's an actress that I really, what I've seen of her, which is unfortunately not that much, but uh, what I've seen of her, I love. Uh, She was, you know, she won an Oscar for her eight minutes of screen time in network. um, (laughs) And it's great screen time, but she's really great in this as well because Mm -hmm. um, she and her team, they come in and immediately it's way beyond them. Oh, certainly. And just like, you can see it on their face when they open the door and see everything spinning around and they're just, flabbergasted yeah they just walk into the haunted mansion and there it is and just feeling like but then slowly just getting more involved in this family to the point where they're never really in any danger but they choose to be here Hmm. because they have a they have a personal stake because they get to know and care about this family yeah and it's the same with the warrens and it's the same with the warrens uh, associates like they yeah. come to care about them as well and there's just something i don't know it's all right this is a it was a weird dot to connect um one of my favorite books is called red harvest uh it's by dashiell hammett oh and it involves uh a character that he would frequently go back to called the continental op which is the an operative with the continental detective agency the continental op he's never given a name hmm. um 
And so he he basically comes into this town that is completely corrupt and run by criminals. Every everybody in it is run by is belongs to some different gang. Yeah. And he comes in and literally everybody's against him. Hmm. And, and, but then, and so he's working alone. He's trying to make alliances where he can, but he's, he's very aware that like, he's going to be killed at some point. Yeah. Um, but then he calls in two more operatives from his, from the detective agency, which yeah. he can do. And they show up and they don't play a huge role, but he has people with him that he can get in contact with and say, Hey, go follow this person. Hmm. And just the, and in reading the book, the fact of those two people there just put me a little bit more at ease. Hmm. And so the idea that, um, and yes, I I wish I had written down the names of the characters in the conjuring, but just not merely the Warrens, but the people that they have attracted that are loyal to them, but could easily walk away at any moment. Right. Right. The fact that there are people there that, that choose to be and want to provide support. Uh, it just makes it, it really makes it feel like a, like a big family at that point. Certainly. And you just feel safer. Um, as a, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's, I often feel it myself to a certain extent. Like there are times when in the, it doesn't happen very much anymore, but in the past in listening to the show, uh, there'd be times when somebody, writes a very negative comment and then I respond and they write another one and I respond and just keeps happening. And I become exhausted Mm. and I feel like I'm being attacked and the show's being attacked and all that. And I feel exhausted. And there are times when I'm just like, boy, I really, which one of the reasons I brought Josh on as a co-host, why I brought on a co-host at all was because it's just like, I just, at the very least, I need somebody to talk about this with who is also a part of it in some way. Yeah. They're not as invested. It's not necessarily his show, uh, but it just, it provides some relief. And by incorporating more than just the family, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's such an interest and in both films, it's such yeah. an interesting dynamic. Yeah, really. I, two scenes that I love one from each, the, 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 Again, I don't know the actor's name, but when the exorcism is going on in the basement mm-hmm. and the actor who's helping the Warrens, that character, is tearing apart the house. Yeah. Huge kudos to everybody from the director to the writer to the actor who's playing it for that scene and mm-hmm. how desperately that character who, you know, I can't even remember his name, yeah. but that character is desperate to find that little girl. Yeah, absolutely care. Not just as a function of what's happening, like wants that little girl to be okay. It's exactly what you're talking about, like sharing the burden of of what's coming against this house. And in the same way, um, Beatrice Strait in Poltergeist, I love it's probably my favorite moment for her. And she has she has some great moments Mm -hmm. in Poltergeist. But my favorite moment for her after that scene you mentioned earlier where, you know, the guy has a, a horrific vision in the bathroom and like yeah. rips his face off and everything. Um, she has a moment at the, at the kitchen table with, um, uh, Joe Beth Williams. Yeah. Where it's late at night, right? Is uh, that what it is? Yes. Or is it the next day? It's, I don't recall. Actually, I think it's the morning after. Okay. And, uh, and she's sitting there and, and she's kind of assessing cause they've had to, they've had to do because of the events that have taken place in the house, they've had to do some, changing around in their personnel mm-hmm. and she says marty the guy who had the vision in the bathroom yeah. marty will not be back but then she takes joe beth's hands and says 
I will be back. Yeah. And you see in her performance, like, well, yeah. now this is, you know, where, where you go, I go. I'm yeah. not just here because I was hired. Like, yeah. I, I will be back. Yeah. And I absolutely loved that moment. And, you know, there's a hug and, and Joe Beth Williams is like, gets a little emotional yeah. in it. But I just love in both films how these these people who are trying to yeah. the the victims um, have called in help and the help really cares like you know sincerely cares it's not just like a job to them and I appreciate that so much you know it occurs to me I was trying to figure out like what is it about this like because this is certainly not the first time I felt this when I watch a movie the idea of like people coming alongside. Mm-hmm. And I realized, ah, the Harry Potter series. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. something that I that I love, mm-hmm. you know, especially like in, in um, the fifth film. Yeah. When the kids are doing, they've, they're doing what they can to hold off the Death Eaters and all that. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's like, and they've come to like the end. Like they, they only have so much experience. There's only so much they can do. Yeah. And then... Then the order, like, then the order of the phoenix oh. shows up, and it's it's this idea of like the cavalry have has arrived. Yeah. And we finally like, I, you know, I'm about out of I'm I'm out of moves. Yeah, but here comes somebody else to just provide that relief, and it just feels so good to know that you you weren't alone. It's you didn't so have to relieving. do this alone. Yeah, and and that idea of I'll be back. Yeah, and not in the threatening Terminator way. <laughs> you know, but just the promise of. I could leave right now. And this guy left, and I can't say as I blame him, given yeah. that he just saw himself rip his own face off. Yeah. Um, I could leave, and it'd probably, be, it'd probably feel pretty good to leave and yeah. feel safe in my own life. But I'm not. I'm right here. And just if I was going through that in any number of – and there, you know, there have been times when it doesn't have to be you – know, it doesn't have to be a, you're in imminent danger, mm-hmm. but just you're in a rough – you're in rough shape and someone yeah. says, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. You can call me. I, I'll stay here. Whatever. I am here. Yeah. Um, and it just, it feels so great. And that's one of the things I like about both of these movies that they share is the idea of adversity, bringing people together. Certainly. Um, yeah. By choice as well, mm-hmm. you know, that, and that speaks to some stuff that we've talked about on the show before, which is maybe that that is sometimes why maybe God allows bad things to happen is mm-hmm. because I mean I think this is something that we talked about with the exorcist last year is that these bad things happen because it can bring people closer together yeah and you have a deeper understanding of what a connection with another person looks like yeah um, well I love I, I don't know if your thought was finished so I apologize no, for interrupting you but the but uh, Lorraine Warren says it mm-hmm. in in the in the exorcism at the conjur- at the conjuring or in the conjuring um, she says when when Ed Warren wants her to leave when yeah. he wants her he's afraid for her safety and he wants her out of the room when he's doing this this bombastic thing and then she says god brought us together for a reason and this is it yeah and i i just you know kind of get chills thinking about that moment whether or not you agree with her stance right uh vera farmiga uh, acting it and uh and then just the whole tone of the moment she's just like no this this is our purpose yeah. this is why we're here and it's it's a very powerful thing, and I think that's something that not a lot of Christians are very comfortable with accepting mm-hmm. the fact of uh, that there are there are certain things that have come into our life um, that 
I'll say it this way because I've, I've said this a couple of times for, for reasons completely beyond the scope of my understanding. Um, we, the, the God of the Bible and the God that I see exhibited in the world around me every day mm-hmm. is a God who redeems far more than he prevents. So he, he far more so than intervening to stop bad things from happening. Yeah. He more often will take all the, the bad stuff that has happened yeah. and find some redemptive power in it and find some redemptive force. And what often frustrates me is people, often well-meaning people, who see that quality and then think that somehow he intended or desired the bad thing that happens. Right. I do not believe that. I categorically would, would argue against him desiring bad things to happen to us. Yeah. But for whatever reason that he did not prevent it, I do believe and see in the Bible and, and believe and see in the lives of my, of my friends and family members and in my own life yeah. that there is a capability of something redemptive happening through it. And I think some of what we're talking about, about these people coming together and, and coming alongside, there's a, a profound beauty in that. Mm-hmm. Do you need, in the, in the worlds of the film, do you need uh, poltergeists to start jacking up your house or the right. you know, conjuring to start messing up? Well, I would hope not. And I would do you need a possessed tree to eat your son? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like, and I don't believe in any, uh, even an iota, I don't believe in a God who would position those things specifically so that right. this redemptive thing could happen. But I do believe in a God who these evil things are taking place and can bring people or things into the situation that can change the entire tone of the situation. That's one of the things I love about The Conjuring is that, you know, this this element is completely beyond the Perone family. But here's the Warrens who are able to navigate through this. And, you know, depending on your perspective, you could see it. A couple of different ways, but it's like, okay, well, where is God when the house is falling apart and the walls yeah. are dripping blood? Well, it's like, well, then you get the interaction of the Warrens, you yeah. know, and and I think there's a lot to say about God's hand in bringing them together, and some of the characters even say it. Yeah. About like, you know, again, going back to what Lorraine said, God brought us for a reason, and this is it. Yeah. And I, it's something that I really resonate with, an idea that I really um, that I dwell on a lot, and that brings me a lot of hope and peace yeah. when I'm thinking about some of the darker shades of what happens in this world, mm-hmm. and and how how to navigate through it as a Christian and as a believer, as somebody who wants to to maintain hope and faith in the direst of circumstances. Yeah. that's something I cling to. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, that's a really neat idea, and I and I like the phrasing of it. It's uh, the idea I've had before, but the but the I don't know. You said it very concisely. The idea of uh, he redeems far more than he prevents, and I mm. think we we try to go through our lives with trouble being prevented or avoided, right? Um, and pain certainly as well. Trying to minimize that, and I don't think that's a terrible instinct. But then when when it comes our way, now mm-hmm. of course it can be heartbreaking and legitimately so. And God heart God's heart breaks as well in those certainly. moments. Yeah. But we we put such a premium on the idea of pain or trouble being avoided or or being prevented that if that doesn't happen, if we lose somebody or yeah. any number of things, uh, then we act as though 
like, well, that's the end of it. That's right. the end of everything. It's like, no, no, no. If there's one thing that God has shown over and over again in the Bible, it said, no, there is no over. There is no end. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the idea of God working everything to the, to the, uh, oh, shoot. Works everything together for the good. I think for the good, for the good. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of like, is it, it's like, I think the word is good, but somehow that seems too simple. (laughs) Um, But like doing that. And then the idea of, you know, uh, Joseph and his brothers saying like, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Mm. And I I don't remember exactly where I heard this thing. I think it might've been C.S. Lewis. Uh, It's probably that apparently (laughs) he's the only thing I read anymore. Um, (laughs) But the idea that, you know, when you think eternally, if something if something is worked towards an eternal good, well, eternity is going to last a great deal longer than the 80 years that we live on this planet. Yeah. Now, it could be a very painful 80 years, but if that 80 years turns you towards the eternal good, then that speck – then that bad is going to be just a speck. Mm-hmm. And what's more is you will – and you will only think back on that speck of bad as the thing that turned you towards this eternal good. And thus you will become eventually, I'm I'm reluctant to say this and I hope it doesn't sound too callous. You could become even grateful Mm. that that speck of bad occurred. Mm. Um, Anyway, I I think that might've been a bit of a, a a bit of a, a tangent, except that, you know, in the moment, I mean, I can't think of anything, more horrendous than the idea of like demonic possession and oppression. Right. But the idea of if that brings you closer to God, if that makes you dependent on God and brings you as believers or as a family or a family unit, whatever, if that brings you closer together and focused on God, then, then it has been redeemed. Mm -hmm. You know, then that is a thing that horrible though it was, uh, has been redeemed. And that will bring us actually into, uh, that'll bring us into a number of uh, Bible verses that I have here. The first is Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I like the phrase, they comfort me. Yeah. Um, because it's not merely they keep me safe, but it also, the idea of being provided comfort, that, I feel like that goes beyond mere safety. Yeah, um, I agree. Second uh, Corinthians 10 verses three and four, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So, and then the next two are pretty, are pretty long. Um, I will throw, okay, so I will throw Mark nine verses 24 through 29. I will throw those to you now, this comes in the middle of a story in right. which uh, Jesus drives out a, a, a demon uh, in it, that is possessing a, a young boy. So go ahead. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, "I do believe! Help me overcome my unbelief!" When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this can come out only by prayer. Yeah. So, the idea that this can come out only by prayer. And so, I don't know, it's just, 
it sounds strange, but w- among the many things that I take out of this uh, passage is this idea that there are some problems that seem insurmountable, unless, of course, we go to God. Yeah. And then, and how for many of us, myself included, by the way, that a problem that only God can solve is like I dis- I often despair just as much over that. Yeah. As if someone said it's completely unsolvable. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so, uh, but I mean, this is dealing very specifically with the same things as the conjuring and poltergeist and that sort of thing where it's a spiritual problem. And thankfully there's a spiritual solution. Yeah. Um, and I want to take a moment and talk about like, okay, so we're talking about very, uh, very, uh, overt spiritual warfare. So, Let's talk about maybe the let's talk about the kind that we're more likely to encounter in our lives, mm. um, which is it could be any number of things. You know, listeners know the the issues I deal with. I deal with depression. I deal with deep melancholy. I deal with bitterness, resentment, and envy. Yeah, and a horrible insecurity. All of which make me very ineffectual as a Christian. Mm. Um. And when I'm in the throes of any of them, the last thing I want to do is pray for a num- for any number of reasons. You know, when you're feeling resentful and bitter, you tend to feel a certain degree of self-righteousness in that. Yeah. And so you certainly don't want to go to God and then realize, eh, I'm not being very righteous right now. <laughs> um, and so, and when you're being envious, you're you're saying, if only I had this thing, I would be happy. And to go to God, God is the one saying, no, you have me, so you're fine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I, no, I want, I want this other thing, you know? And so, uh, so I absolutely know. So those are the things that I'm naturally, uh, that I naturally tend towards. And so yeah. to put it in spiritual warfare terms, I have no doubt that there are times when I feel bitter towards a friend or I feel really unsatisfied with myself. And I have no doubt that there are, you know, little whisperings, little thoughts put in my head of just like, yeah, that guy's kind of a jerk mm. or just, eh, he doesn't, he doesn't even, he doesn't even care. Yeah. You know, and certainly it, it comes about in my marriage all the time, uh, <laughs> thoughts like that. And so, um, so yeah, it, it could be stuff like that. And then, um, uh, again, I, I mentioned C.S. Lewis a lot on here, specifically mere Christianity, screw tape letters and the great divorce. I've read other books by him, but those three are the ones I think of the most, uh, yeah. for a number of different reasons. But screw tape letters is always is a, such a fascinating idea because I recognize objectively that C.S. Lewis uh, that he doesn't know how demons are thinking <laughs> he doesn't know and yet somehow it makes so much sense yeah because one of the things as I was doing research for for quotes for this episode is because I just and I just said the idea of like things being whispered into my ear and in the screw tape letters it says. Not only is it important that we put thoughts in their head, but we also have to keep thoughts out. Hmm. And one of the thoughts, the thought for me could always be, this can only come out by prayer. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not, you know, our, our, our situations aren't necessarily going to look like our loved one has been possessed by, (laughs) uh, by a demon or, you know, uh, or anything from, from poltergeist, it could just be that we are 
deeply unhappy, deeply unsatisfied, and we feel like God can't fix it. Yeah. And thus, we don't even turn to him. We yeah. don't read the Bible. We don't talk to our uh, Christian friends. We don't pray because we are now of the opinion that that would be useless. Yeah. And that's pre- that's precisely the reason we dismiss it is because, I, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to call them. They're just going to pray with me or they're just going to, you know, yeah. and, and I have already heard that. Yeah. Um, I want to say, uh, if I may, something as briefly as I can about that sort of more subtle mm-hmm. spiritual warfare, because I do, as we've said a couple of times, it seems to be a theme in this episode that like there's there's extreme ways that you can view certain topics. Yeah. Um, really, every topic you can view it in an extreme way. And I feel like some people either believe, well, there's no such thing as, as demons or spiritual warfare of any kind. And then there's other people who see every headache and every – I think I right. may have even mentioned this when we were talking about the exercise that there's some people who think every single annoyance or or every single problem in their life is some sort of spiritual attack. They see it right. laced through every single thing. And what I've said before, this is diving a little bit into what I personally believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I set that up by saying, you know, like that this is a belief that I hold, personally speaking, I'll defend it, but I wouldn't, you know, I would invite kickback to this if anybody had any but the way that i view spiritual warfare in those sort of subtle uh day-to-day ways is uh and and i'm i'm gonna say this beforehand this is not a political statement in any way it's not intended to be okay it's it's it's, i'm using this word chris christie 2016 (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'm using this word in its in its uh definition not Mm -hmm. its association with politics but I often said that the enemy of our spirit is a capitalist, not mm-hmm. because capitalism is a bad thing, but because he capitalizes yeah. on moments of weakness or or stumbling or something like that. And so somebody has a hard day because hard days happen and frustrations arise yeah. and you got up, you know. Well, you and head, headaches occur. Exactly. And yeah. you didn't sleep very well. You didn't eat very well or you haven't exercised enough or any number of things could have happened or somebody else said something that was inoff- that was offensive and rude and it set off the day that those kind of things are the common occurrences of everyday happening yeah. but where spiritual warfare can come in is kind of what you alluded to as well that but then the enemy of our soul if you believe there is one and I do would seize that moment and say you see that this is what always happens mm-hmm. or you're never going to be able to get free from that. Or yeah. you see that that's, you know, that somebody may, you know, Hey, see, you have a headache, your body's falling apart. You're, yeah. you know, and, and then would take that and just pervasively attack yeah. with, with an idea or establishing. I sometimes say to someone who's having a hard time, don't let what you're saying right now or what you're feeling right now be a verdict on your life. It neither yeah. defines what your life adds up to or who you are. Um, because this is one day that you're having, yeah. and when you throw the verdict on it, which is what something that I think the enemy tries to do, is throw a verdict onto a situation or something that we've done wrong, yeah. and then just cripple us with shame or with guilt, uh, and then we can never, never move past that. And one of the reasons why I love horror films, one of many reasons, is because I feel like the more you confront those things for what they are, even in imaginative fictional senses, yeah. the better you get at understanding how to undermine them. And, you know, I feel like I'm a less fearful person because of how many scary movies I've seen. I know that may sound yeah. a little twisted, but I I feel like I've encountered enough 
uh, sort of experience just in life and in these fictional tales to to have some sensibility of recognizing where I'm being undermined in my life by yeah. things like fear and guilt and shame uh, and counter counteract them some way. And I think that is largely uh, where the real battleground of spiritual warfare is, yeah. not so much in The Conjuring and Poltergeist, though I do love those stories and think that stories like that – you know, there's there's a few of them out there from real life that may or may not be valid, but I feel like real sort of spiritual warfare is in what we've been talking about yeah. the last few minutes of recognizing everyday things. And you know, it's it's interesting the, what you were talking about the idea of uh, the person who sees in every headache and every uh, snide comment or whatever, every red light they hit. You know, yeah. Um, a couple episodes ago, we talked about um, the guest, and we talked about idols, and uh, I think I, I, I'm sure I'm quoting any number of Christian authors, but at the moment, I'm talking about Tim Keller, who says, an idol is when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Yeah. And by making it the ultimate thing, then what you're saying is, this is the thing that will ultimately complete me. Mm-hmm. Now, you can go the other way with it, and, you know, uh, I, I won't say an, an idol, but, like, a spiritual warfare and a demon can take a bad thing and make it the worst thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, like, and, and you, you, you did a great job of explaining that, like, this is what always happens. Not, this happens. Or, right. this has happened this one time. It's, right. isn't that always the way? Yeah. You know? And... I can't think of anything more despairing than, well, of course that would happen. Yeah. Because there's a real inevitability, a sense of negative inevitability yeah. there. And and in both cases, it takes something that is everyday and manageable and takes it to an extreme and takes you away from God. Yeah. Either because in the, in the case of like taking something good and making it ultimate, it's saying, I don't need God because I've got this. And then when you take something bad and to, and make it negative, uh, making it extremely negative, uh, it's well, God, this is too bad for God to help, you know. Yeah. And nothing's God doesn't care. Otherwise, this wouldn't have happened, you know. And so it's just that that is where spiritual warfare comes into play, mm-hmm. because the whole point of it is to get you away from God. Yeah. And so, because I th- and I think this is this is a. This brings up a, a line, I think, from The Exorcist, which is the idea of uh, this This happens so that we despair. Yeah. Is that, the, is that the line? In the in the director's cut of The Exorcist, the um, – well, I don't know. The, in the recut version, the more recent version, the young priest asks the older one, uh, why this girl? Why is this happening? And the older priest says, um, I think it is to make us despair, to see ourselves as animal and ugly – to make us think that there's no way that God could love us is, yeah. is the line. I know the line because it's my favorite line from my favorite movie. Yeah. But that that's – I think that is the point that yeah. um, if there is a malevolent force out there – again, I believe there is. If there's a malevolent force out there trying to undermine all that is good in your life, all that yeah. God has given you, I think that it would try to do so by making you see yourself as unlovable yeah. and as unloved. And see that there was no possible way that yeah. something like you could be loved, um, yeah. which, of course, I believe is a lie. 
Yeah. Now, these are attacks. What can we possibly do to protect ourselves? If only there were some kind of armor. All right. Oh, Ephes- wait. Ephesians 6. <laughs> Uh, verses 10 through 18. Um, And I specifically wanted to end with, with this. So finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Now, we're not necessarily going to break all of that down because we could uh, entire sermon series and maybe entire <laughs> books have been written about what what each of those uh, is. Certainly. So, but it is this idea that you know, the best possible way to protect yourself from spiritual attacks. And we've been talking about what a spiritual attack is most likely to look like in your life. The best way to do that is to, uh, one of the things that I like about this is, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, of course, there are some things that are outlandish. You could pray for a new car, Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, there's there's nothing outlandish about that. Like some people need a new car, you know, they <laughs> got to get got to get to work. Yeah. Um, but let's say like a, an excessively nice car that you don't necessarily need, you know, and just praying for things you don't need. Yeah. Um, but even then, it just says all kinds prayers and requests. Go to God. Go to God with anything, even if it's a silly request in the moment. If you go to God enough, you'll come to realize what the silly requests are. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But you're just always going to be going to God first and foremost. You know, this is the kind that can only come out by prayer. Yeah. Um, and just the emphasis of like just staying in communication with God through prayer, through – first off, I, I, I do like that it says with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Like it starts with truth. First off – Entertain the notion that there is such a thing as truth. That's helpful. Right. Um, and then, because the moment you say there is truth, the next question is, what is it? Yeah. And once you start down that path, then you will end with God. Mm-hmm. You will. Now, of course, that's also a beginning, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, which, by the way, is also uh, one of the theories of this podcast that uh, art in many ways is a search for truth and you can only search for, search for truth long enough before you wind up at God. Yeah. So even films that ostensibly would have nothing to do with God may wind up uh, talking about God's truth because they are searching for truth and you can't do that without finding God. Anyway, um, so yeah, this is a nice little blueprint. So reading your Bible, talking with other Christians, going to God in prayer and in with all kinds of prayers and requests, just 
inundating yourself and I don't, and not in a blind way, like you and I were talking about earlier, you right. know, use your brain, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a problem, then there's nothing, in, you know, I was talking with a friend, uh, a couple weeks ago about this. Like if you have a doubt, that doubt does not mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't, the fact of there being a doubt doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian, that you can't pray about right. it, that you can't look into it. Um, it just means like, okay, this is what I need to think about for the time being. Right. And so, so I feel like this is, this is the best way to deal with, with spiritual warfare and it may not make it go away. Like I said, there are things that I deal with. I have better days. I have worse days. Sure. Sometimes those worse days are worse weeks or worse months. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a rough thing. Um, but if you, if you're turning to God, then you always have hope. And as long as you have a little bit of hope, that can be enough to get you through the, the yeah. worst times. Yeah. You know, there are people who still to this day email me about my, uh, my testimony episode, oh, which is like episode yeah. 40, I think at this point. Yeah. And, um, I think back on that and that was, it was back before I was on antidepressants. Mm. It's back. I mean, I go back and listen to that and think, wow, I was in rough shape. <laughs> um, and I go back and listen to uh, Robert Hornack's testimony. Yeah, yeah. In which at the time he was definitely in rough shape. Sure, sure. And, you know, the question is like, following God is not going to make you happy all the time. It will merely, sometimes the most you can get out of it is just hope that you're going to get out of what, where you are right now. Yeah. And that can be enough, you know? And so the thing about, and, you know, we'll be going back to the exorcist, but also poltergeist, also the conjuring, the thing about spiritual, spiritual warfare and demonic oppression and all this, say, Satanism and all that is that like, you know, you don't have hope. You're lost. Yeah. You're never going to get out of this. You have no hope because if you, the minute you think you don't have any hope, then the notion of God is out. The, the notion of God's redemption is out. Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, I feel like I've been talking for a while. Do you, oh, do you yeah. have anything you want to? No, no. Uh, well, something that, that Lewis talked about, uh, in I think it was in Screwtape Letters, but I don't think it was part of the actual book. I think it was in one of his like forwards or afterwards mm-hmm. to the books. Um, and this has helped me a lot to try to wrap my head around what I actually think about um, evil and malevolence and all those kind of things. He described it as an appetite that could never be satisfied, that it was, that it was pure appetite. And I think about that, that notion, uh, in context of any film about spiritual warfare that I see, be it the exorcist or the conjuring or poltergeist or anything like that, that it's like these, these forces must take and take and take, and they can never be satisfied. Um, but actually in, in many cases, what undoes them is giving. Yeah. Is what, you know, like uh, sacrificially in some capacity. Granted, you know, Jo Beth Williams is optimistic that she's going to go into that portal and she's going to come out with her daughter. Yeah. And, you know, but but it's still she's making a sacrifice because she Absolutely. doesn't know. Yeah. You know, and they have a I love that they have a moment before she goes in because you don't know if she's going to make it out. Yeah. And even with The Conjuring, Lorraine is going into this, even though the film establishes that she's recently had an experience that she didn't quite, it took a big piece of her yeah. is, is the way it sets it up. And the exorcist going to go on and on and on about that. Um, but it's, it's interesting that it's like the evil forces 
just can never stop taking. In The Conjuring, this idea of this Bathsheba creature Mm -hmm. has every single person's lived there, just possessed, gets them to do the same thing over and over again, just gets them to do the same thing and can never be fulfilled. And I find it... I find it to be interesting as believers trying to – it's almost as if, okay, evil is the place where appetite can never be satisfied. Yeah. And wholeness is the place where there is no no appetite. There is no need. And it's all just joy and fulfillment and pleasure. And that is what we have the promise of finding in God. Yeah. Um, So while we are here in between these two states of existence – there's there's going to be tension, and some yeah. days we're going to sit in this camp. Some days we're going to be sitting in this camp, and I think that as long as we are in this world, which is presently trapped kind of between those two those two possibilities, I think if you're sitting over in the in the the evil camp, or not that you're evil, but if you're right. sitting in a place where you're susceptible to that, the only alternative will be to recognize in God there is no lack. In, yeah. in him, there is wholeness. And even though I'm not whole at the moment no. and I don't have that full, complete peace, there is something that I can tap into that is wholeness and that is peace yeah. and and can find, as you've expressed, can find some hope there. The devil exists. God exists. And for us as people, our very destiny depends on which we decide to follow. And it is a decision. Yeah. You know, it may not feel like one. Um, and some, and somehow, even if you're, even if you're not making a decision, you are indeed making a decision. Yeah. I wish I had written this thing down from, uh, screw tape letters, but it's this idea of like, it's like, uh, most, it's like the road to hell is just a nice, is just, is just a steady, uh, decline just so that you're just walking very gently without realizing it and you're walking downhill but you don't quite realize it yeah and it's just a nice pleasant walk you know Mm -hmm. and you're just and you're just walking along this way because it's the easiest one but you don't even consciously know that yeah um and so it's uh yeah so it's something to be to be thinking about um is uh you know who whom are you deciding to follow not, I didn't necessarily want to end on that note, but that's the thing is that's what we're talking about. We're talking about two opposite sides, one eternal want mm-hmm. and one eternal fulfillment. So, all right, man, deep stuff. <laughs> Pretty heavy. Yeah. Reed, thanks for being here. We're yeah. going to have to watch that, uh, that comedy video again. <laughs> no problem. Who's up for the Simpsons? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so, uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments, uh, this is certainly the episode to have them about. Um, you can leave them in the comment section of the of this post of morethanonelesson.com. You can also email me at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can like us on Facebook. Where can people find you online, Reed? Easiest place would be uh, Twitter, just at Reed Lackey. At mm-hmm. Reed Lackey. Yep. So, all right. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for listening. Thanks for sticking with us through Halloween times. Uh, we'll, we'll be, you know, back to, well, I guess next week, next week we're not back to normal. But after that, we're going to be back to doing uh, best of pictures episodes and the whole deal. It'll be a lot of fun. So, in the meantime, Reed, thanks for uh, filling in for Josh. And oh, for thank you for having me. Taking part in the episode. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.